0: I'm losing my muscle. I'm just. I'm too focused on the low reps. Now I need high reps. I need to build. You see where I'm going with this? Like these are the worst people to train. Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host Mike Robertson, and this is our October 2023 Q&A episode. Now, before we jump into this week's show, want to give you a quick recap of the past couple weeks, months. It's all whirlwind at this point in time, and I feel like I've been everywhere. Uh, I think Kendall's soccer coach the other day said something along the lines of they played 13 soccer games in five different cities in the last five weeks. And just thinking about it, we've been in Nashville for a tournament. The next weekend, Kendall played two games here, but on Sunday, she played a game at noon. Her and I drove to Chicago, which is three hours, watched the U.S. Women's National Team play, And then drove back all in the same day because it was Megan Rapinoe's last game. And it just seemed like the right thing to do. And then last weekend, we actually had to drive up to basically Chicago again just for one game. And then we came back. So we have been road warriors the past couple weeks. And I keep thinking to myself, oh, pretty soon it's going to slow down. But not really. (laughs) This weekend's a little bit lighter. But then we've got fall break. We're going to try and get out of town for a couple days. I go to Seattle. Uh, the following weekend, which I'll talk more about here in just a little bit. So, man, just all over the place, but you know, it's been great. Kendall's really been thriving in soccer. Kade's had a really successful baseball season by and large, and he's a lefty. So unfortunately, kids can't pitch to him. So he either walks or gets hit by pitches a lot, <laughs> but at least that gets him on base and he gets to score runs. So he's been enjoying that. And we're also just trying to diversify him a little bit. We had him in a skills camp for volleyball for two months. Now we've got them in some tennis, just trying to diversify these kids' athletic or movement foundations. I feel like so many kids and so many parents are just laser focused these days. And while I get it, especially if you're competitive, you want your kid to be the best or give them the best chance for success. At the end of the day, I want my kids to enjoy sports. I want them to make new friends and I want them to find ways that they enjoy moving their bodies. So they'll do it for as long as possible. So kids are doing great. Along those same lines, this is mind-blowing, depending on how long you've listened to this show, but Cade, the one and only Cade, turns 10 this weekend, which is just astonishing to me. I can't believe it, because we're looking back at these old pictures and videos we have of him when he's one, two, three years old, and just such a cute little guy, and now he's a little man. He's 10 years old. So we got that coming up this weekend, and then, I'm not even trying to think about this, but in February, Kendall's going to be 13, so we're going to have a teenager in the house. So... Lots going on on the family front, but it's all been good. Definitely a shift just in life and in work. The past couple of weeks, all my players are off and out the door these days. So they're in training camps or their seasons are starting. So trying to follow them, keep up with them as best I can. Just excited for them. And hopefully this year is a, a successful year because a lot of guys and girls are in different places. They're with different teams, different clubs, different countries, so really hoping that it's a successful year for all of them. And that's really kind of shifted my emphasis because when the summer's going, it is all about coaching, right? Like I get up, have breakfast, I'm out the door and I'm coaching most of the morning. The afternoons, I do all this other stuff, whether it's the podcast, the videos, um, any type of consulting or mentoring that I do. But now that everybody's gone, it's a big shift because I only have a couple people that I'm working with regularly. And it's allowed me a lot of time to work on my program design mentorship. And if you've not heard about this, give me like 30 seconds to kind of give you the overview. But the mentorship was something that I created years ago. I think I started it five or six years ago now. And I really started it because I wanted to help people level up their program design skills. I feel like so many questions that I get revolve around programming. Like how do I write a better fat loss program? Or how do I train this person that doesn't squat well? Or how do I improve this person's vertical jump? So I did it years ago and I hadn't ran one in a while. So I thought, yeah, I'll just pull those slides back out and I'll run the the little group. It'll be easy. Well, I start looking at those slides and I'm like embarrassed. <laughs> I'm like, I can't put this out there. This isn't really reflective of how I think or how I design programs now. It's not bad, right? It's not bad, but it's not reflective of where I'm at now. So Of course, biting off more than I can chew, I decide to go in and I'm revamping the whole thing. So, literally, from the studs up, I'm, you know, recreating every presentation, trying to rethink and and better explain everything that I do these days and just kind of give you the truest lens that I look through when it comes to writing programs. So, it's been an awesome experience. It's incredibly hard, right? Like, I carve out like an hour and 15 minutes every morning where i leave the house i go to this little starbucks that just opened by the gym put my headphones on and i just focus on that so all in man we're talking just like hours upon hours of creating the content thinking this through and then hopefully helping the 10 or so trainers and coaches that join this program really level up their program design so if this is something you're interested in definitely let me know and the next time i open it up i can put you on a wait list or something like that And then, last but not least, beyond just that, is if I'm not creating enough content with podcasts and videos and the mentorship, Joel, Luca, and myself are going to be hosting a virtual conference on October 21st. So make sure you have that on your calendars. That's about all I can say for now. But it is going to be awesome. And if you train Gen Pop clients or people that are interested in living longer and healthier lives, I think it's definitely something you're going to enjoy. So, That's enough for me. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to jump into this month's awesome Q&A episode. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym. And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the cert is all about. Now, Here's the thing, spots for the cert only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to CompleteCoachCertification.com. Again, that's CompleteCoachCertification.com, and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you'll join us when the next Complete Coach Certification launches. Okay let's do this. Starting off with a question from David. And I've got this awesome mix of questions this week because some of it's like high level, like really like deep stuff. And then there's some that are just kind of like quick hit, faster acting, lightning round type questions. So let's dive in. David wants to know, what reflections do you have after your 23rd year of coaching? And man, this is a deep question. <laughs> I didn't know which direction I wanted to take it, But I use this as a reflection of how did my off-season training with my basketball players go this off-season? Because I think it's just a really clear time to say, okay, what went well, what do I need to improve on, and how am I going to make 2024's off-season even better? So if it's possible, David, this was the best and worst off-season I've had of all time. And (laughs) that's the best way that I can explain it. There were some things outside of work, outside of IFAST, that really took away from my time and energy. There was some stress uh, that I did my best to try and manage and mitigate. There were days it bled over. So just outside stressors, normally I'm very good at compartmentalizing that. But I know, at least in my brain, I hold myself to a very high standard. And there were one or two days this offseason where I was not at 100%. And I let outside factors impact my ability to coach and to really connect with my athletes. And that bothered me. So stress was something that I need to better manage or find ways to make myself even more resilient. Second, there's certain situations that I can't control. And I need to understand and respect that. So some of my when you're in pro sports, let's just start there. When you're in pro sports, there is always that that time where an athlete is worried about, am I going to get a contract? Who wants me? Who's going to pick me up? Am I going to make the right amount of money? Is it going to be the right situation? Am I going to like the city? And there are times where that impacted me probably more this off season than it has in years past. And again, these are things that I can't control. And so the note that I wrote to myself, I kind of did a debrief as I was thinking through this off season. And it's always coming back to this idea of controlling the controllables, right? I'm not their agent. So I can't control if they get a a great job or if they land in a country that they want to or if they make the money that they want. I can't control that. What can I do? I can control my attitude and my approach to working with them. I can make sure that every day they come in the gym, I'm gonna make their day better, right? Because they're not focused about their contract or any of that stuff. They're focused on, hey, I'm gonna get my body right. I'm gonna get my body ready. So wherever I end up in whatever situation I'm in, I can play at the highest level. So that's something that I kind of jotted down for myself is stress is part of it, right? Because we're in a high stress job and a lot of these athletes are under a lot of stress for a lot of different reasons, but that doesn't mean I need to carry that burden for them. And I need to find ways to kind of cast that aside and just focus on what can I do to reduce their stress and help them do what they need to do when they're in with me and that's prepare their body for the upcoming basketball season. So that was one thing. In a lot of ways, it was my best year with regards to, I think, some of my coaching. I feel like 23 years of coaching. Every year, I try and get a little bit better. I feel like I did that this year. But especially with regards to some of my programs and my ability to use KPIs. And got to give a shout out to my guys here at Hawkin. Being able to dive in with the force plates and really get underneath the hood as to what some of these guys and gals needed to work on finding the KPIs that would measure that and then creating and implementing training programs that focused on on building those KPIs were absolutely huge. And I got two guys in particular. One was my guy Junior. That's all I'm going to say, just Junior cuz he's a high school kid. But Junior had some awesome improvements in his vertical jump this offseason because man We were looking at his numbers and kind of found some things that I wanted to work on, especially like eccentric velocity and his ability to use that stretch shortening cycle. And man, we dived in, we put in this program. He was super religious about doing it and he trained hard every day. And this guy put three, four inches on his vertical this summer. And that's force plate numbers. This is not like, oh yeah, he did like a jump mat or a vertex and we scanned the system. These are force plate metrics. So he added like three, three and a half inches on his vertical this off season, which was awesome. So he did great. Another one was Ed. Ed's been my guy for, I think four or five years now. We've been through some battles. We've been through some long, long off seasons. And one of the big focuses we put on his off season training was improving his breaks because he's so fast. He's so explosive. Can we teach him how to slow himself down to decelerate more effectively so that when he gets to the rim, he's under control and he gets more baskets? And man, Ed did amazing. Like literally, if you saw his eccentric and breaking metrics, it was here to start. And then you could just see them creeping up, up as the off season went on. It eventually plateaued because we kind of got what we wanted to out of it and we shifted emphases. But man, just the ability to laser in and say, these are the things that I want to address. These are my KPIs to create a program and then to see those numbers change was incredibly rewarding for me. So I think that was great. As far as what was the worst part of it? I think I was really bad this off season about just time management and being able to shut off when I went home. And so I've had to reinstitute some policies (laughs) that I've had in the past. And I'm gonna have to pull my phone out here because eventually this thing's gonna go off and I'm gonna hit it quickly. But one of the things I used to do was hit this reverse alarm. And I know I talked about this in one of my podcasts, I'm 400 some deep now, so I don't remember exactly which one, but we all have an alarm when we wake up in the morning, right, 6, thirty, seven. whenever you wake up, you got your alarm. Well, I actually had to institute the reverse alarm and I actually have two of them. The first one goes off at 4 p.m. Because at 4 p.m., my kids are home and I shouldn't be thinking about work anymore, right? I shouldn't be thinking about my podcast or what videos I'm going to create or how I want to improve this PowerPoint or how I want to write this program. That's not relevant at that point in time. The most important thing at four o'clock in the afternoon should be spending time with Jess and Kate and Kendall, focusing on them and just enjoying their time and energy. So that's something that I've had to reinstitute. And it's one of those things I forgot about it. And then I started to reinstitute it. And a lot of times I'll not only turn my phone off or put it in do not disturb, I'll just put it away. Like I'll go plug it in, put it face down to where I can't even see it. And then we'll go off and do something else. So finding better ways to manage my time and just improving that work-life balance. Because look, I know I talk a lot about this. I am not perfect in that regard, but trying to find ways to acknowledge, hey, I wasn't great about it. How am I gonna make it better next year? So my 2024 strategies for improvement, I got a short bullet point list here. I wanna continue to refine this assessment KPI programming process. And I think there's some really cool stuff in there that I wanna do with regards to just the vertical jump as a whole, some of the other testing metrics that we track to really be able to laser in and say, okay, based on what I'm seeing on their data here, this is the exact exercises that I wanna use. And then based on that, how are we gonna put it into a program so that we can track it and we can improve those KPIs going forward? So I wanna to continue to refine that. Another thing that's very important to me is focusing on the process and not the outcome. Again, we can't control when our athletes get signed. We can't control what country they go to or how much money they make. So, okay, I can't control it, so why stress out about it? We can focus on the process getting them in the gym, punching the clock, doing the little things every day to make them better athletes, that's what we should be focusing our time and energy on. So for me, focusing on the process and not worrying so much about the outcome. Third, (laughs) getting more sleep. And this is really hard. Again, I, I like to be transparent in this show because as trainers, coaches, we all know we should work out and fuel our body appropriately and get enough sleep and rest and meditate, do all these things. well. Sometimes they're easier said than done for everybody, myself included. And I know sleep is important, but for some reason in the summer, it's really hard. Part of it is the whole daylight savings time thing. It's not dark till 10 o'clock. My kids want to be awake. So by the time we get them in bed and then Jess and I, maybe we want to watch a show or just read and relax, have our own time for an hour and a half. Well, now it's 11, 1130. I got to be up by six, no later than 630 because I'm in the gym at eight. So I got to find some way to make myself get more sleep in the summer. I'm not sure how to make that happen yet, but I gotta try. And then the final thing here, and I think this is really important, especially as we get older, is just finding ways to make things fun. It's really hard when you're in these environments where again, there's a lot of stress involved, there's a lot of pressure involved. So you gotta find ways to keep things fun and engaging. And I think that's something that I think was maybe lost a little bit this summer. I don't think I had as much fun as I normally do. And I need to find ways to infuse more fun back into the workouts, into the sessions, so that everybody wants to be in the gym, right? IFAST is amazing because we have just this familial bond across all our members. But for me, I really wanna try and find a way to make sure it's fun and engaging more often than not when you come into the gym. So David, sorry, that was like a really long answer, um, but kind of like a deep dive into my evaluation of my off season and ways that I want to make next off season even better. So great question. Next question comes from Amy. Amy would like to know why did I change all of our (laughs) Instagram accounts? And this is a great question. Part of it was like in what's the movie? Oh my gosh. Why can I not think of it? The one with Tyler Durden. Oh my gosh. I can't fight club. Okay. So in fight club, The there's that one scene where they're just the guy's going crazy and he beats the guy's face all up. And he said something like I wanted to destroy something beautiful. Trust me, it was not that (laughs) it was nothing crazy, like where I just decided, oh, no, I'm going to blow everything up. Instead, I just had this very salient moment. Kara, who is a member of the gym, does a lot of stuff in social. And so as her and I were talking, it just got very clear to me. What is each of my brands or each of the like companies or segments that I represent? What do they mean to each individual person? Because if you follow me, if you follow Rob Train Systems, you might get basketball-specific content. You might get trainer-specific content. You might get pictures of my family and my kids. It's just all over the place. If you followed the gym, which at the time was just IndieFast, if you followed IndieFast, you might get random coaching content. You might get stuff about basketball players, random athletes. It's just all over the place. So I just kept coming back to, if I follow somebody, I want to know that I'm following the right person, right? Or that it's what I, it's, I want to make sure I'm getting the content that I expect to see from each person. So to try and stream like this, what I did was I just said, okay, who is Robertson training systems for? If you follow just me, Mike Robertson, I am for coaches and trainers, period. That's who I am for. That's who that Instagram account is for. It's to help trainers and coaches write better programs, coaching cue more effectively. And sometimes you're gonna see cute pictures of my kids or my dog, right? So that's what Robertson's training systems is about. iFast Basketball, which is we took the iFast page and just put it under the brand of iFast Basketball. So this way, all my basketball players that maybe don't care about how to do a better row or how to bench press more effectively, They know ifast basketball, that's just basketball related content. So I'm either talking about the players that I work with. I'm sharing content from other content creators, like my guy, Joey Burton, who's a skill development coach. I'm sharing their content and their information to help basketball players get better, or it's just my unique content that's for basketball players. So it's very clear if you're a basketball player or, and, or if you want to learn more about basketball development, you follow that page. And then the final page, which I finally just got around to creating earlier this week, was just the iFast Gym. And iFast Gym is, I don't want to say a hodgepodge, but it's a little bit about the history of iFast. So I'm going to drop in some old pictures, videos, just memory lane-ish content. So people know, oh man, that gym is pretty awesome, right? Like I would love to be a part of that, but also talking to, hey, if you're in Indianapolis We have amazing independent contractors that work out of here that can help you shed body fat, build muscle, become more athletic. So it's not only for the end user in that regard, but also kind of as a marketing tool, if you will, to other independent trainers and coaches, because look, you can go and try and open your own business. And that's what I did, right? Like I decided I'm going to open a gym, but look, I will tell you, I talked to so many people across our industry It's getting harder and harder to open a small niche training focused business. It's hard, right? Not only from an ownership level, because not only do you have to, when you start off, be the trainer and coach and do all those tasks, you have to learn all the business tasks as well. Marketing, selling, operations, systemization. So you have that, but then if you actually wanna scale and grow, you have to hire people. And trust me, I talk to gym owners across the country basically across the globe. And everybody is saying the same thing. It's getting harder and harder to find high quality coaches that want to come in and just do really good work without trying to get paid an exorbitant amount of money without ridiculous demands for what days they'll work, how much time off they're going to get. So that's, I really think as gym owners, this should be a part of your business in a lot of cases. If you want to go open your own gym, great. But if you want to run a business and you want to train and coach yourself, maybe the independent contractor model is something you need to be looking at. So regardless, that's why I created these three different Instagram platforms or accounts, just so everybody who follows each respective account knows exactly what's going to be showing up in their feed. So Amy, I hope that clarifies a bit. It's something that I've been working on for a while, and hopefully everybody who follows my content now will know, oh, I follow Mike, so... I'm going to get great training content and picture the cute kids and dogs. Okay, next up, we have a question from Coach Grimm. And I think most of these came from Instagram. So if you submitted a question, thank you very much. But Coach Grimm wants to know, how do you categorize movements like chops and lifts in R7? So I think he's kind of asking, like, where would I put them? And I think the great question here is, what is your intention? Bill always asks that. What's your intention? What do you want to get out of this? And I think based on your intention, you could put it in probably at least four different segments. So as I was thinking through this, you could put your chops and your lifts in R2, maybe as more of a dynamic reset. So you're really trying to cinch in that split stance posture, right? So it's a little bit more dynamic, or maybe you could just put somebody in a position and have them camp out and breathe there. But I could see it in R2 as a dynamic reset. I could see it in R3 as a patterning or prepping portion of the session, right? So just trying to get somebody locked in. Again, when you're using chops and lifts, you're primarily thinking about split stance activities or trying to lock in that split stance position. So I could see it in R3 as something where it's a little bit more active, dynamic. You're trying to like prime somebody and build them into that workout. I could see it in R4, right? Now, maybe not in the, the truest sense where a lot of people would do like chops and lifts with a cable machine, But as far as chops and lifts, we'll do chopping type throws where we're trying to maybe get somebody into or out of a cut. So it's a low momentum way to help somebody get into or out of a cut when you're using and throwing a medicine ball. So I could see it in R4, but I think the most obvious place and the place that I use chops and lifts the most are in R5. And when I'm using chops and lifts, it's generally as part of a superset. So let's say I've got that person that just struggles to get into their left hip. Maybe I'm gonna have them do a chop where they're chopping into the cut or chopping over that left leg and we do eight to 10 there. And then we do some sort of offset split squat. So maybe the weight's in the right hand, right? The left leg's in front and then we're working on that split squat. So we're trying to turn them into that left hip to really pattern and reinforce that. So lots of places you can place that coach. Really, it depends on your rationale and your intention. I think for most people, R5 is the best place for it, but R2, R2, R3, and R4 are all viable options as well. It really just comes down to what you want to get out of it. So great question, and I hope that helps. Next, we got a question from my guy, Troy, at Emotion Fitness. Troy wants to know, how far out do you program for general population clients knowing they have no deadline. And you're gonna have to give me a second here. I need a drink. So, Troy, this is a great question. And general population clients can either be some of the best programs you write or some of the worst programs you write. And I think it really comes down to your ability to rein people in and help them focus for extended periods of time. So I'll give you an example. When... I write my RTS annual program. I generally plan in three-month blocks. So the first three months of the year are very focused on mobility, restoring movement capacity, and building work capacity, or just building their aerobic engine. So we've kind of got a three-month block there of just setting the foundation. The next three months are geared towards improving body composition because, look, I don't care what your end goal is. If you're 40 or 50 pounds overweight, if you want to live longer, improving your body composition is going to help. So I feel like a lot of clients want to dial that in. And it's also timely, right? When you start thinking about April, May, June, that's when most people are starting to think about, oh, I'm going to be in cutoffs or tank tops, or I got to wear shorts, or I have to be in a swimsuit. So these are great opportunities and great great sources of inspiration right to get somebody ready to go and train in the gym so that their body composition is where they want it to be so we do a three month block there next we do a three month block that's focused on athleticism speed power explosiveness and then the final three months are a little bit more strength focused okay so typically when I'm writing a gen pop clients program I'm thinking in three month chunks now, That doesn't mean it may not be shorter or longer depending on their timeline or depending on where they're at. But I think these three-month blocks give you enough time to think about, okay, where is this person at and where can I build them up over the next couple of weeks or the next couple of months? If you don't think in those types of terms or if you've got that super squirrely client, right? We've all had this person where, you know, month one, oh yeah, it's time to, it's leaning season, bro. Let's get lean. And okay, we're, we're going to get lean and you write them that program. And the next month they're like, yo, like, uh, I, I, I'm getting a little bit leaner, but I'm losing all my strength. We got to get strong. Okay. So now you're on the strength program. You're on five, three, one, or you're on conjugate. Oh no. Okay. But now I'm getting, I'm losing my muscle. I'm just, I'm too focused on the low reps. Now I need high reps. I need to build, you see where I'm going with this? Like these are the worst people to train because every month their, their goals and their aspirations are bouncing all over the place. So I generally try and think in three-month blocks. And I try and get people to commit to that because then it makes their programming that much easier. This is why writing programs for athletes is incredibly easy because there's a very dedicated start time. There's an end time. There's specific goals and KPIs you want to hit over the course of their off-season. So try and make them more like athletes. Even though they don't have a dedicated deadline, put some artificial deadlines in there if you can and again, this is where you can use your own KPIs. So a couple things that I've used in the past, body comp's easy, right? And regardless of what you think about it, whether it's getting on a scale, inches lost, checking body fat, that's one set of KPIs, right? If you just want to track somebody's body comp. Another one could be something like their HRV. So, hey, wh- you want to live longer. You're talking about longevity and being able to do stuff with your kids. Let's see how big of an improvement we can drive in your HRV over this three month period. Hey, you want to get stronger. Let's test your squat bench and deadlift. Now let's train for three months. Where's your squat bench and deadlift at? So I think giving some of these artificial deadlines, but tethering them to goals that are important or impactful to them can be really valuable. So that's the way I generally set up these types of gen pop workouts may not work for everybody, But I find the people that I've worked with that are the most successful gin pop clients are either training for some sort of sport recreationally, right? Like they play tennis or golf or pickleball or something on their own. Or they're these people that are, they have the ability to lock in and focus on a singular goal for at least three months at a time. So Troy, I really hope that helps you out. Again, I think three-month blocks is a great place to start. And it gives you that wiggle room to really see some positive changes. And if something's just not working, you can scrap it and start over. But I think three month blocks work really well. Okay, next question comes from my guy, Ali. And actually, Ali, if you're looking. But Ali wants to know, do you prefer doing breathing exercises before workouts or after? And first off, just my guy, Ali. I hope you're doing well, man. Can't wait to watch you this year. Hope you crush it at Akron. Would love to see a butler again, because, hey man, you're right down the road, but I'll be tuning in some Akron games. So I know I have talked about where I put breathing exercises before, whether it's in the podcast, in some of my videos, in the complete coach cert, but I think depending again on intention or rationale, you can put breathing exercises in one of two places. The big thing for me comes down to what are you trying to get out of it? So when I use breathing exercises before a session, I am generally trying to optimize biomechanical position. So let me give you a for instance. Let's say you have that person, their upper back is just caved in, right? They're just smushed back like this. And so anytime they try and squat, they have to sit way back, right? They can't just sit down. They're so compressed on the backside, they have to sit back to squat down. So for this kind of person, I may do a breathing activity or a breathing reset like a seated dorsal rostral expansion. So this kind of thing, I'll post a video in the link or in the show notes. Phil has a great video of it. But basically, you're in this position. You're trying to round out the upper back, drive some air into that space so that you can shift your center of gravity back and sit down. So if I use breathing exercises pre-workout, it's in that R2 or reset phase, and I'm trying to optimize biomechanical position. Now, on the flip side of that, let's say you just finished a session, right? It could be in the weight room. You could be getting off the court. You're gassed. You just worked really hard. Well, your autonomic nervous system and your sympathetic nervous system especially is just tweaking out, right? Like it's been going so hard. Well, when your sympathetic drive is off the charts, you can't recover. So in this sort of instance, what I'm going to do is just, it's not even so much positional breathing as it is just restorative breathing. So this could be something like crocodile breathing where you're laying face down, you kind of make the little diamond, put your forehead in it and just breathe for three to five minutes. Or one of my favorites with my athletes is literally put them up against a wall. So their buttocks are basically on the wall, their legs are straight up. So you get that venous return out of the legs, you get the lymph moving a little bit. And then again, just let them chill out and breathe for three to five minutes. But in this case, it's not so much about restoring position as it is just rebalancing that autonomic nervous system. It's getting that parasympathetic nervous system to kick in so you can show out, relax, and kickstart the recovery process. So what do you want to get out of it? You can rationalize both. And trust me, I use it in both, but again, pre-workout, it's more for optimizing biomechanical position, making sure that my clients and athletes are moving effectively. And on the back end, it's more to just kickstart that recovery process So when they walk out of the gym, they're already recovering and they're getting ready and preparing themselves for the next training session. So fantastic question, Ali. And I love that athletes that I've worked with are asking these questions because I hope you take this stuff and you use it. It will make a big impact on how you move and how you feel. Okay, I think we got a couple more here. Next, we have Callan. Callan would like to know, what are your thoughts on flywheel training? Going a little bit further, can it replace free weights? So first off, shout out to ExerFly. They have been a podcast sponsor and supporter for many years now. So appreciate you guys. Thank you. So first off, I'm just a huge fan of flywheel training. And this is my second year incorporating it with my basketball players. And I liked it. Last year, there was definitely a learning curve in figuring out how I wanted to program it, where I wanted to put it into my programs But man, it went from like to love. Like I love the ExerFly. I love flywheel training. I think it's such a great tool for a lot of reasons, right? Not just the quickness in the turnarounds that you're going to get, the stopping and starting that you're going to get out of it. I think it's just an incredibly versatile tool. So whether we're talking squats, whether we're talking hinges, whether we're talking split squats, there's all kinds of different attachments that I was using. I was doing leg curls, leg extensions. We were doing calf raises some this off season. There's a bench attachment. There's so many options there. So it's incredibly versatile. And I think for me, a lot of the athletes I work with, sometimes when they get like a barbell or a safety bar or something like that, they feel really tethered and they feel really blocked in their movement. And I feel like a flywheel is just this really organic way of training that most athletes resonate with at a very high level. So can't say enough good things about it. Now, with that being said, does it replace free weights? I don't think so. Like I'm not ready to, to move to where I like just do flywheel training because I still think there's a lot of benefit, especially early in the off season. I think there's a lot of benefit to some of the heavier strength training, especially the connective tissue development, the ability to really control tempo. I do a lot of tempo training, like slow and controlled type stuff early in the off-season for connective tissue development, restoring movement patterns. So I think there's still a lot of benefit to just your standard free weight strength training programs, but it's not so much about picking one or the other. I think it's just, it's a better way to think about it is to figure out where should this fit into my program and where do I place it in my off-season program? Because one of the mistakes I want to call it that one of the learning uh, opportunities I had last off season was I really kind of saved it for the very end of the off season. And I think in some instances that was great because I kind of paired up, okay, they're going hard on the court. Now we're doing this aggressive start and stop in the gym. So we kind of married the two, but then I had Alex and Tara on my podcast and Alex is a pretty smart dude. He's, oh, I actually love it early in the off season as a preparatory tool. I was like, oh, yeah, I like that because that resonates even more strongly with me. Because one of the things that I like to think about is as physical preparation coaches, one of our jobs is to always kind of be a step ahead of where our athletes are at in their offseason process. So here's what I mean by that. When a basketball player comes off a season, right, the first thing they do when they get back on the court, they're not playing fives, right? They're not playing aggressive. A lot of times what they're going to do that first month, they're just going to get shots up. They're going to move around. They're going to knock the rust off. Second month on the court. Maybe now they're doing a little bit more live or they're doing a little bit faster paced stuff, one on O. Then maybe that will get into, okay, now we'll do some really live stuff. Half court, twos, threes. Maybe they start stretching the legs out, playing some fours and fives. So if we know that kind of structure or that type of off-season layout, we can kind of plan accordingly and we can be a step ahead of them. So while I'll do a lot of the slow restorative stuff in that first block, just to get them moving and feeling good, I'll start introducing some of that flywheel training actually in month two now. And I feel like that made a big difference because now sometimes you would see some of these aches, pains, and boo-boos the first month or two that they're really going hard on the court again. My knees or my Achilles kind of hurts. But since I did this year, I had so much less of that. And maybe the guys and girls are just taking better care of their bodies. I don't know. Maybe the rest of the programming was better. Again, you don't know. But I feel like this was something that I changed or altered this offseason. And I feel like it made a big impact. The last thing I would leave you with, Callan, is what are your KPIs telling you? So again, coming back to some of the athletes that I work with, some of them were pretty force deficient and especially like eccentric force deficient. So you can train force eccentrically on a flywheel, probably even better if you have one of the ones that has like the the overspeed or the motor that really ramps it up. But some of that eccentric force development, the slow stuff and heavy stuff is still done really well with just an old school barbell or safety squat bar or trap bar. So I'm not ready to say no free weights yet, but I will say I'm trying to find that best ratio between free weights and flywheel training to create like the ultimate athlete. Not there yet, but man, we're getting there. We're getting there. I feel like we had a really successful off season and I'm excited to see how everybody responds and how they tolerate their training loads this year. So great question, Cal and I hope that helped. Okay, two more. Now this next one is really long. I wanted to paraphrase it first. This is from Gary and Gary wanted to know, how do you address a coach and give them constructive criticism, but I don't think that really gives you the context necessary. So I'm gonna read the whole question and apologize because it's a little bit wordy, but I think you need some context to understand my answer. So Gary says, how do you address giving a coach constructive criticism if, let's say they're constantly over-queuing a client to the point where it's disruptive to other trainers around them, and it's even irking them out? I've tried to do this in a private setting so as not to feel as if I'm putting them on the spot, there's my reverse alarm, complimenting their strengths and knowledge, but telling them how it's coming off and they just get defensive and skirt around the issue. I even tried to point out that him over explaining things makes him look less confident, but he still has excuses. They have even seen complaints from clients as well as communicated to management and assume we'd taken his side. During his coaching, he definitely has an air of trying to sound like a star too and showing off, but it also definitely comes from a place of insecurity any coaching tactics here. So this is tough. Anytime you are managing other humans, they I think there's, you have to, first off, you have to find your best way of interacting with other humans. So what works best for you, Gary, may be different than me. And when I was a coach coming up, all of the coaches around me were very like strong authoritarian types and like ruling with the iron fist. And I think I tried that for about six months and realized, yeah, this doesn't work for me like at all. This is not authentic to who I am. And so the second I started coaching from my own place of authenticity, immediately I had more success. I had better relationships, stronger connections, and ultimately my athletes wanted to train harder when they were with me. So you got to figure out your unique kind of strategy for giving criticism. Now, with that being said, I'm going to give you the way I do this and the way that I've done it in the past. So user mileage may vary, but I want to put some skin in the game here and tell you how I've done it. First time I have to deal with a situation like this, I do the compliment sandwich, right? And I know this is probably like conflict resolution or management 101, but talk to them about some things they're doing really well, right? Hey, you're doing this and this awesome. Now, With that being said, here's this one thing that I've identified as your mentor, coach, supervisor, whatever, that I feel like you need to work on, right? So just make it known, address it. You don't have to pound this person into the pavement. Let them know, hey, this is an issue and we need to work on it. But don't forget about all these things you're doing awesome, right? So it's like the compliment sandwich thing. And hopefully that gets the job done. Now, it sounds like you've already tried this. And if it's not working, then it might have be time to scale and go to level two. And this is where you have to be more direct. And look, just as a manager in the past, this is always a way more uncomfortable conversation to have. The first one you get to really pump them up and make them feel good. And everybody has faults. Everybody has things they're working on. Sometimes people just aren't aware of the things that they're doing. So you're just making them aware of it, but it's in this like safe and feel good environment. Well. At this point, when you've tried that tactic and it's like either falling on deaf ears or they're just not getting it, now you gotta be direct. And now I don't wanna see you have to call them out, but you have to tell them, look, what you're doing isn't working. Here's what you're doing and how it comes across to your clients or to the other staff members and you gotta fix it. Like enough of like the feel good rah-rah type stuff because I'm assuming you're this person's supervisor in some way, shape or form you got to let them know, look, this isn't working. Like here are specific instances. And I think the more you can take emotion out of it and just make it objective. Hey, look, you thought you were being funny or you thought you were doing this. Here's how this trainer interpreted it. Here's how this client interpreted it. And so just drawing that contrast between what they think they're doing and how people are actually looking at them or how these people actually view them and their behavior, you have to create that contrast because they may just not understand, right? Like the soft and and feel good type stuff didn't work. So now you have to let them know, hey, look, this isn't working. Here are specific instances where you didn't get the desired response, fix your behavior. Worst case scenario, you got to go to level three. And that's generally how I do things and how I've done things in the past. It's kind of a three strikes, you're out. It's kind of like baseball, but worst case scenario, you got to let them go. And I will say this, uh, Mark Fisher and I talked about this. Uh, I feel like I've talked about this on a couple podcasts now. It's never fun letting somebody go, but it's almost always the right thing to do. Like it's very rare that somebody just first try, oh, nope, you're gone. You're out of here. Very rarely does that happen, right? Generally we give people too long of a leash and then we dread it, right? We sit on it forever. We make it take way longer than it should. And then ultimately, when we do cut the cord and we say, look, I'm sorry, this just isn't working. We tried to give you feedback. You probably should just find some place that's a better fit for you. When you do that, it's amazing because both parties end up feeling better, right? If they're that insecure, right? Maybe this isn't the right field for them. Or maybe they need to go to a gym where they can be a star, where they need that type of personality. And on your side, not just your side, but your team's side. When you let that person go, it's like this collective sigh of relief. Immediately the energy is better. Everybody feels just happier. They're more confident. Like everything is better when you let that one person go. So never a fun situation to be in, Gary. And I know Sean actually talked about the book Crucial Conflicts, um, I think, or Crucial Conversations. If you haven't read that book, definitely check it out. It's very valuable, but that's how I would address it. Kind of that three strikes and you're out approach. Sounds like you've already done level one. So level two may have to be, hey, look, sit down. We need to have a chat. Never fun, but needs to be done. Okay. Couple final questions here. My guy, Justin Ware of Ball State Powerlifting Lore wants to know, have you watched any Harry Mac videos yet? Now, I like YouTube like in the sense that I'll watch random videos about things I'm interested in. I create content for it, but it's not my thing, right? I I don't spend a ton of time on there. So I had no clue who Harry Mack was, but my guy, Justin, who I've known since I was like 22 years old, was like, you got to check this guy out. And I will say this. Yes, Justin, I have watched some of his videos. Yes, he is dope. I'm not sure how he does it. So if you haven't watched this guy, literally, he just... I don't know if he calls people or what he does. If he finds these random people that call into his show, they give him or he gives them three words, right? So squirrel, nutcracker, and mocha latte. And he will find a way to freestyle wrap these words into something right off the top of his head. And it actually makes sense. And it's actually generally pretty darn good. So yes, he's impressed. Impressive. Also, Justin, thank you because now anytime I go on YouTube, I'm getting fed Harry Mac videos, even though I'm not a subscriber. So appreciate that, my guy, and hope you're doing well. We need to get together soon. So hit me up when you hear this. Last but not least, this question comes from, I think it's just late. Got a Kobe and Jordan on like little profile pic on his IG. So respect to that. And Lati wants to know, should stability and mobility be involved in the warm-up or cool down? And he loves the show coach. So lady, first off, appreciate that, man. I want to say something at the end of this show, but appreciate that more than. So when we're talking about stability, mobility, these are kind of nebulous terms. And I, I don't really think in this way anymore. I think whenever you're trying to decide what goes into a workout, the first question you have to ask yourself is, what is the goal? If I only get one thing, out of this training session, what is it going to be? Is it going to be getting stronger? Is it going to be improving my power? Is it going to be developing more mobility, right? So you got to figure out what is the goal and then you need to steer everything in that workout session towards that one goal. The second thing you need to ask yourself, and I'm not sure if you're an end user or you're a coach, but for the trainers and coaches listening, you got to ask, what does this client need? This is where your assessment comes in. So, if you put somebody on the table and they move like the 10 man, okay, well, maybe mobility is an issue. If they're an athlete and they're super bendy and they got all the motion that they need, but they got like a credit card vertical, okay, well, they need something else, right? They need power and explosiveness. So, a lot of times I will just think in broad strokes. So, what is our warm up there to do? Because this is really what you're asking. What should be in the warm up? What should be in the cool down? The warm up is there to prime the system, right? you need to get the system warm you need to progress into or you need to work them into progressively larger ranges of motion right so you can expose them to whatever range of motion they currently have access to and you need to develop and and pattern movements so there's a reason you don't just go in the gym and throw 4 or 5 on the squat bar right you hopefully do a warm up you do some dynamic mobility you pattern so that's the goal of the warm up on the flip side, we talked about this earlier with Ali's question. The cool down is all about kickstarting the recovery process and chilling out. So if doing some mobility drills or some flows, breathing exercises, whatever works for you to help you chill out and relax at the end of a session, if that works for you, then by all means do that. So lady, I'm not sure I gave you a great answer here. If you got a more specific question and you can drop it to me, I would love to answer that next month. But again, I just try and think broad strokes. What is the goal? What does the client need? The warm up is all about prepping and priming the system. And the cool down is all about kickstarting that recovery process. So if you can kind of figure out what your goals are and then plug and play accordingly, I think you'll be able to get whatever job you want done. Now, before I wrap this up, I just want to say something real quick. This has been top of mind. And I talked about stress a little bit earlier on, but for a lot of reasons, this was a stressful two to three month, period for me, for my athletes. Haven't felt like myself a hundred percent, but the last couple of weeks, just the outpouring of support that I've gotten from people like you, whether it's been via YouTube comments, whether it's been people commenting on the show, personal messages, direct messages, emails, man, I read all of those and man, I love and appreciate you guys so much. Again, everybody has ups and downs, right? I feel like I don't want to say dark days because that sounds really like gloomy and doomy and sad. But man, there were just some rough stretches the past three to four months. And I feel like I'm coming out on the back end of that. I feel like I'm more focused. I'm more clear than I have been in probably years. And man, just ready to world domination, right? World domination is always the goal. (laughs) And I think sometimes world domination sounds really bad. Like I'm trying to submit people and put them down. So in a lot of cases now, I just think about world elevation right? That's what I'm trying to do with the show, with the YouTube page. I'm trying to make every trainer, every coach, every athlete that follows me and consumes my content to help them get the most out of themselves. So just want to wrap this show up by saying, man, thank you so much for your support. Truly love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.